Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Ali Afai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today I'm joined by Mreem Alaf, a writer, editor, and public speaker whose work has consistently pushed for a more just, not merely politically expedient, end to the Syrian conflict. Reem, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Faisal. So we're here to talk about what I think is quite an interesting topic that's rarely discussed, which is what it feels like on the ground when the rule of these seemingly eternal leaders come to an end. And, and it came about because of this thread that you posted, uh, remembering what, what it was like uh, 21 years ago when Hafez al-Assad died in Syria. We were all hoping for a big change at the time, but indeed we are one of the few countries which experienced the Arab, Arab Spring, but you know that have not had the, the luck thus far of having a change. And I think that the Syrians have paid one of the heaviest prices of all the uh, Syrian, of all the Arab uh, Spring countries. We're still yeah. waiting. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Bashar Assad was just, quote unquote, re-elected for another seven year term. And whereas there was a little bit of a push in the last 10 years from the so-called Friends of Syria to reach a compromise with the powers that support the Assad regime, I think everybody now understands that they want to turn the page. They want to consider Syria in its post-war scenario. They want, you know, bygones to be bygones. And, you know, a lot of Syrians are not having that, really. Mm. I mean, this is one of the, the hardest problems, actually, to grapple with. But I wonder, before we get into that, because that's that's a very interesting moment that we're living through. But let's go back to uh, 2000. And just just before uh, Hafez al-Assad died, let's sort of think about, uh, tell me a little bit, about what was it like, like living through that period? A lot of people had great hope because they felt that things in Syria had reached a status quo where everybody could live and let live. The 80s were a terrible decade for the Syrians. We had seen the massacre in Hama in the early 80s. The Assad regime had fought its war with the Muslim Brotherhood. It was engaged and embroiled in a crazy war in Lebanon and then, you know, de facto op- occupation of Lebanon. Yeah. And it was on the list of sanctions, you know, from a great number of countries, you know, the US, the UK, and it really was very isolated. But in the late 80s and the early 90s, with the liberation of Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's invasion, uh, ironically, this is when Hafez Assad saw an opening because George Bush, George Bush Sr., excuse me, at the time, wanted this international coalition. You know, the U.S. did not want to go in there alone or only with Western countries. So it tried to get as many Arab countries as possible. And Hafez Assad said, OK, I will go in. I will participate in the liberation of Kuwait. And Syria did send troops on the condition that no Syrian troops uh, entered uh, Iraqi soil. And for that, Syria and the other countries got what uh, was called at the time the Madrid Peace Conference. And this is what got Hafez Assad and Syria back a little bit into a more, uh, let's say, normal uh, situation. So some relations were rekindled with the Arab world. Hafez Assad was again, uh, I wouldn't say courted, but at least accepted mm. as a player in the region and internationally. And the peace process went on for a few years. During that time, the heir apparent to the throne, Basil Assad, the eldest son of Hafez Assad, was killed in a car accident. Mm. So since that day, since 1994, 
all Syrians were ready to accept that Bashar Assad was going to be the next president. Because they had gone through these, what I call the terrible 80s, and the, you know, a little bit of a breath of fresh air in the 90s, I don't think anybody was ready to rock the boat or to even try. And there was even a sense that there might be some economic liberalism that as the as the sort of the end of the harvest, because he was sick for, you know, a few years and his sickness was known. So Indeed. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was completely unexpected when he passed away. As you say, they were grooming Bashar for six years before it happened. Indeed. And everybody was hoping that those steps that Hafiz Assad had taken slowly, which was not only, you know, preparing the public for this, but making sure that any ambitious or overly ambitious general or figure in the intelligence services would not have any funny ideas. That's why Hikmat Shabi was uh, sidelined. That's why uh, all, all the big figures like um, Ali Duba, who was the head of intelligence, the position that is now um, held by uh, Ali Mamluk, these were all names that Syrians grew up terrified of hearing. And you know, we never knew them. We never knew what they looked like, but they were sidelined. And the people who stayed in the intelligence at the top echelons of the army, there was no questioning their allegiance to the Assad regime and their loyalty. So when Bashar Assad came to come back to your question about this economic dream, yeah. you know, the Syrians were, were hoping for, everybody was hoping, you know, let things happen slowly and soon enough, we are going to live a different kind of life. But obviously, you know, this did not end the way they were hoping. It very quickly turned into a Damascus winter. Well, this, I mean, we'll 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 come back to the the bit about Hafez dying, but actually, let's keep going with this because you you wrote, I think, in the thread that the Damascus winter came rather suddenly after this sort of opening after Bashar took power. But actually, there was this sort of sense that maybe Bashar could be a different kind of leader. He was young. He was courted by by uh, Western powers. Yes, but this was also part of the big PR machine phase. Uh, they really were showing how cool he was. There were all these rumors about what a workaholic he was, about all the ethics he had, about how humble he, he was. There were rumors that Bashar Assad had personally demanded that posters would come down, you know, that no further posters would be put up of Bashar Assad. And these were all just rumors because the more it was claimed that he did not want to be want to be, you know, part of, of, of this, um, you know, cult of personality that we were seeing developing around the, the Arab world, the more posters and, and pictures and photos magically came up, you know, in, in shops, on the highways, on car windows. And, you know, it, it was really, really a pandemic of, 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 of a very specific Syrian kind. So he did want to project this, this image as somebody very modern. And that's what gave hope to a lot of Syrians, that surely somebody who, you know, who is set to like Apple, you know, the, the, you know, the computer, and somebody who is set to like music, and somebody who eventually married a woman who was brought up in the West, in the UK, surely this person could not be an exact copy of his father, N you know, neither in the father's violence nor in the father's style of governance. And you think that that was an explicitly um, the public relations move? Like you Absolutely. Think that, right. I mean, you, you, you've lived, you lived through both those periods. Was there more of a cult of personality in the first years of Bashar than there were in the, the latter years of Hafez? 
much more so. And, and, and you know, the, the, the statues and, and the posters and the slogans that began appearing were much more um, pronounced, were much more, were bigger in size. There's a big difference between Hafiz Asad and Bashar Asad. Hafiz Asad, for him, it was enough to be feared and respected. He didn't care if, you know, for this popular adulation. For Bashar Assad, it was very important to be loved, to be admired. He wanted to be the cool new leader. And at the time, I remember comparing his, you know, his self-perception uh, by him, his own comparison to two other leaders in the Arab world who had just taken power and also had this kind of vibe. One was Abdullah of Jordan whose father had died, who became king, and who had a young, glamorous, educated wife. And the other was the son of King Hassan of Morocco, who also became king after his father's death, and who had, you know, a wonderful wife. And, you know, they, there was this trend now of these young, of course, you know, Bashar al-Assad was supposed to be a president and not a king, but the point is that there were these young leaders who were supposed to be, you know, very, very hip, and very modern and very cool. But I think this is where comparison stopped. And while I will not tell you that there's a great deal of democracy far from it in Jordan or in Morocco, there is also no comparison in the situation, in the circumstances, the conditions of Moroccans and of Jordanians. What Syrians had gone through in the 80s and to some degree in the 90s, really nobody else in the Arab world, except say, you know, perhaps for Iraqis, had gone through. I mean, those two countries, Morocco and Jordan, of course, they're explicitly monarchies, whereas with um, Syria, there was there was this long six year coronation of Bashar. Um, the story, which I think you've told elsewhere, but I mean, sort of well known now is that they had to change the the the, the age limit. And yes. it wasn't even to a, it wasn't even to a, a sort of a round number. Yes. Yes. In a few minutes after after having announced the death of Hafez Assad, Parliament was recalled for an emergency session. It was, uh, you know, televised. We were all sitting home watching what was going to happen. Everybody expected that the regime would find a way because Bashar Assad was 34 at the time of his father's death. And the Syrian constitution, um, it, it, you know, says that you have to be at least 40 years of age to become president. Mm. So, you know, I thought, you know, maybe they're going to do it 30 or they're just going to remove the age requirement altogether. And all they did in five minutes in front of our very eyes, they put it down to 34, his exact age. I mean, they might as well have said, you know, the president must be 34 and his name must be Bashar. <laughs> exactly. But that I think, you know, we can joke about it, but it's sort of interesting because I wonder if it is a deliberate attempt to demonstrate contempt, a way of sort of showing the power that the state has over people's lives. Absolutely. And this is something that most uh, Syria watchers will tell you. Every move from the Syrian regime is calculated. They know what they are doing. They want to make sure that the population will never dream that change or fundamental change is possible. And that started on June the 10th, 2000. Like, don't dream that we're going to pretend to be, you know, a little bit uh, embarrassed by what's going on. No, this is the way it is. You have to be 34. You all know it is Bashar's age. And a few hours later, mm. the top generals and the top security uh, members of, of the intelligentsia came and sat 
in Bashar Assad's home, even though Bashar Assad technically had absolutely no formal um, position in the Syrian state. And yet, well, he was the he was the head of the Syrian Computer Society. I mean, let's not you know denigrate his <laughs> his achievements to the great Syrian nation. How how how? Yeah, we have yeah. to laugh. We have to laugh, not to cry. Indeed, a country that uh, at that time I think you you were not allowed to have Mac products in. And yet, the, and yet he was there, uh, not, only and, that. not only that Windows as well, I think. Not only that, you could not have a fax, you could not have a satellite dish. The, the most ridiculous um, small gadgets or small electronics, you know, had to go through Syrian customs and then they would be, you know, examined. And, you know, it, it depended on your luck. You knew somebody, you could bribe somebody, you could get them in. If you didn't, you, you know, you, tough luck. You lost everything. So, yes, the, you know, mm. the, 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 the ironies in, of the situation in Syria. I mean, we've often called it, I'm, I'm not the only one to have said this, you know, it's the emperor uh, with no clothes. Or, you know, yeah. the new clothes, which are no clothes. You know, we all knew everybody could see what was going. But, in it, you know, it's a matter of self-preservation. They, you know, most Syrians would have thought at the time, you know what, there's nothing we can do about that. We'll take what they give us. Yeah. This is how sad it was at the time. And you begin, despite yourself, to believe that there is hope, that things are going to get better. But again, circumstances showed that Syrians were always prisoner to this this illusion that Bashar Assad had that he was going to be this great leader, this great statesman, and that he was going to play a big role in the region. This happened in Lebanon. This happened in Iraq. And, you know, we might mention some of these uh, circumstances where Bashar really got too big for his boots. And this, the, every time the Syrians would pay the price because whenever there was talk, even hinted talk of reform, we would be told this is not the time. Syria is being pressured. We have enemies. We are at war, etc. And this has been going on for now over fifty years. Well, that was the the first big test actually of reform. Came rather rapidly after he after he became president. Within a matter of months, you had this um, uh, this this declaration. Uh, yes. By the the ninety nine intellectuals signed the statement at the end of twenty twenty, the year uh, uh, the end of two thousand, the year he took office, and there there was a real opportunity if the regime wanted to take it to actually make some reforms to free political prisoners you know to have some freedom of speech to lift this uh, long running emergency law that had been in place even before assad had taken power indeed since march 1963 and this was the golden opportunity for bashar assad to show that he was a different kind of leader he did not want to do that he did not want to take that chance he wanted to remind syrians that you know let you know don't get any crazy ideas let me give you an example which quite a few people are not familiar with a few months into bashar's uh, reign and we have to call it reign uh, one syrian lady forwarded an email that she had gotten from a friend and that email was a rather graphic um cartoon depicting bashar assad and the then president of lebanon emil lahoud in a very compromising situation, let's put it this way. Uh, she was arrested. She was uh, taken into one, not even a proper jail, into one of the regime's dungeons, God knows where. And even though numerous uh, well-known Damascenes and, and personalities appealed personally to Bashar Assad saying, this is not the way to do it. Could you please release her? Nobody could reach her. And she remained for six months in custody 
because she had forwarded that email. Now, what is the message for all? Because, you know, the rumor mill, we all knew about it. The message is don't even dream of crossing those red lines. There will be a price to pay. So when the statement of the 99 came, this was incredibly brave. And they didn't ask for the moon. You know, they asked for, as you were saying, Faisal, a little bit of freedom, you know, let us express our feelings, you know, free the liber the prisoners of conscience. No, they started, um, you know, tightening the, 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 their hold on, on, on civil liberties, whatever remained of civil liberties at the time. A few of these brave signatories ended up in jail and we were back to square one. And that's what we call the Damascus winter. And mind you, that was at the end of the year 2000 and the beginning of 2001. That's how quickly things turned. But you remember, of course, what the argument was at the time. I mean, the argument at the time by the sort of regime supporters was to say, look, Bashar has just come into power. He's trying very hard. It isn't him who's doing these things. It's all of the old regime around him. Give him some time and all of this will fade away and he will actually enact these reforms. You don't well, believe any of that, do you? Not, not, not for a moment. That's part of the big propaganda push. As I said, in my opinion, there never was an old guard and a new guard. There's a guard. There's an elite which needs to maintain this regime because it's good for them, because it keeps Syria, you know, as, as a country that plays a role in the region. And Bashar Assad was never going to have any of that. So as long as Syrians accepted to be this modern, quote unquote, country where, you know what, we'll give you a few shops, we'll give you a few cafes and, you know what, have some more Internet uh, not Facebook, not the social media networks, but, you know, slowly have some mobile phones because Syrians went crazy, you know, when finally mobile phones were allowed in the country because these were the sort of things that they dreamed of. They wanted to be like everybody else. Syria was probably the last country to be allowed to have cell phones for, you know, normal people. The last country where satellite dishes were not automatically, you know, forbidden. So with every drop, that the Syrian people got, the regime felt that it was more powerful. But at the same time, what was disintegrating completely was the middle class of Syria, the middle class which was holding Syria together for so long. And you had a lot more poor people, you had a lot more, um, you know, we'll talk later perhaps about refugees coming into the country. Yeah. Nothing was done to you know, there was no trickle down economics to borrow from, you know, from the US. There is no such thing as that. There was a regime, they wanted to live it up. And the problem is that they were living it up obscenely. They flaunted their wealth, they flaunted their cars, they flaunted their parties. That's what we call in Syria, especially in Damascus and in Aleppo, the velvet society. While people were struggling, you know, the, the economy was really not developing, inflation was rising, and the regime, in order to finance its, you know, its lifestyle and to finance all its adventures in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Iraq, well, it needed more money. So it started removing subsidi subsidies from a lot, you know, from fuel, from bread, slowly, slowly, not all at once. So all of this was happening, Faisal, as the world was boiling, as the invasion of Iraq was happening, and then Bashar was sending busloads of you know, Islamists that he had liberated from his jails. So many things were happening at the same time. And when we look back, we forget that 
the Syrian people were slowly, you know, reaching the point of implosion, which explains what happened in yeah. March 2011. It did not happen out of the blue moon. Well, I want to, I will come to that, but I sort of wanted to talk about maybe this, like this almost there was a four year period, I think maybe you'll correct me, but sometime around the start of the reforms, late, late 1998, and then yeah. until really until um, the war on terror really sort of ramped up. So that would be the 2002. There was this sort of period of time where actually things were changing inside Syria. And you wrote in the, the thread that finally you were able to get hold of a, of a mobile phone and a, a telephone number. Yes, but, but you have to remember that these so-called reforms only affected a very small part of the population. You know, the privatizations that happened, the, the very few businesses that were allowed to open, one or two universities here, here or there, a few private schools. Yes, it was a very gradual opening, but it only affected a very small segment of Syrian society for the vast majority they were just watching what was happening. It, it had absolutely no effect whatsoever on their own lives. There was no real reform of the economy. This economy was always a crony capitalist economy. And this is what, in the end, you know, this was a huge factor, by the way, in the was it obvious even at the time? I mean, one of the things that I've sort of, I'm trying to get a handle on is what it felt like at the time to be in Syria, to see these things opening. Because, you know, like every country in the world, people want to be part of what's going on, what's hip, what's current. Yeah. And so when you have these things happening, and you know, a lot of exciting things were happening in the world, late 1990s, just before the, um, the web bubble. But yeah. there were a lot of things happening. And you can imagine that looking across at Lebanon, where a lot of these things were taking place, people wanted to be part of it. It must have been a little bit exciting to be part of it, even if it were only, as you were saying, in the major cities in Damascus and Aleppo. It was, uh, certainly, because this was, you know, unheard of and unseen in Syria for decades. I mean, we were really the most closed country, even more than Iraq, for many years because of the paranoia of the Syrian regime. So when these things started happening, you could sense that there was some change in the air. But accompanying the sense was this, you know, this hope against hope that things would also, also change for you. I, at the time, was based between London and Damascus, mostly in London. I used to come back and forth several times a year to, to Damascus. And I used to spend sometimes, you know, a couple of months at a time. And I would notice every time I flew into Damascus that there were changes, you know. They, but those changes were, were great for people like me who came with, you know, U.S. dollars or British pounds and had a grand time. And, you know, I always joke with my friends, you know, while we're sipping frappuccinos at the Four Seasons Hotel, because we can, people from my extended family who lived, you know, in Douma, who lived in Harasta, who lived in Greater Damascus, lived an entirely kind, different kind of life, not because they were less deserving, not because they hadn't worked on themselves their whole lives, but because there was absolutely no way for them to break out of that circle. There was no way they could improve themselves, improve the lives of their families. I must insist on that. These changes were mere, you know, you know, cosmetic changes when it comes to economic reform. In reality, this was a crony capitalist uh, economy. Some mobile phones came later to, you know, the poorer people, the less fortunate because things became cheap. You know, they allowed a lot of imports for China. But overall, real life 
did change for two segments of society. The elites who started really living it up and, you know, make more money and the much uh, lower class of Syrian society, which became poorer and which became more frustrated. And then it was that uh, convergence of these very difficult circumstances to, throughout the, the 2000s that led eventually to the, the explosion of the revolution. Absolutely. And this was accompanied again by all the different foreign, uh, I call them adventures, really misadventures that Bashar Assad would, you know, Bashar Assad likes to see himself as a very smart and very important player in the region. And anybody who has followed interviews he has given over the years showed that he is a mansplainer of, you know, of the first degree. He loves to uh, pontificate on, on the region. He loves to explain how Syria is, uh, you know, uh, struggling to fight the big conspiracies. And it served his purpose to be part of the resistance axis. So Syria was being confronted by the West, the US, Israel, the, you know, the, the Gulf, the Arab Gulf, and it had no choice but to stay steadfast. So this is where, you know, there's another dichotomy because we thought we were moving, but the language remained the same and in fact got even more um, pronounced about being in this resistance, about having no choice but to stand for our beliefs. And it was under Bashar Assad that the relationship with Iran became even more pronounced and Bashar started depending more and more on the Iranians. And the Iranians have been buying property in Damascus and around Syria for years. So all of these things, when you put them together, you start seeing a pattern of why things went from 2000 to 2011. You know, they didn't happen so quickly. It was not just a result or a consequence or an inspiration from the Arab Spring, although that was certainly something that resonated with a lot of Syrians. But, you know, the circumstances were there. Lebanon played a big role. Iraq was incredibly, you know, sobering for the regime, but it was the war that Israel waged on Hezbollah, on Lebanon in 2006 that ironically gave Bashar Assad his way out of isolation because Israel could did not manage to wipe out Hezbollah as many in the region had hoped at the time being. And Qatar stepped in to say, you know, guys, we need to solve this. So they brought the Lebanese altogether to Doha, to Qatar. They reached the Doha agreement. And it was based on this that Syria was again, you know, a respectable member of society. And after that, Bashar thought that nothing could touch him, as we also as we all saw, excuse me, in February 2011, he gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal in which he very confidently claimed that the Arab Spring would never touch Syria. Mm. I mean, he had managed to survive. As you say, 2006 really did make him relevant again. And yes. uh, a lot of the leaders in the region that thought they would be able to sideline him actually ended up having to um, to go to him and, and uh, work with him once again. You're saying the same. Sorry. Sorry, mind you, I didn't mean to interrupt. Mind mm. you, this was after the assassination of Rafiq Hariri on the 14th of February 2005, which we all remember. And, you know, we all understand that this is, you know, a combined effort by the Assad regime and Hezbollah and the forced withdrawal of Syrian troops from Lebanon in April 2005, after being there since the late 70s, mid 70s, in fact, these were all shocks. And it was after the withdrawal from Lebanon 
and Syrians watching on their satellite channels, Lebanese, you know, just a couple of hundred kilometers away, cursing the Syrian regime. This was never seen before. And this was, I think, the period which most gave Syrians hope that Bashar Assad now understands that he cannot go on like this. And that's when he called for, uh, you know, a Ba'ath co Party Congress and everybody thought, great, we have finally reached, you know, uh, you know the, the the status that that we were all waiting for, and they announced in in that um, Congress that what was a socialist economy would become uh, a social market economy. I nobody still understands what it was. Uh, we still don't understand what it was. It was just again just cosmetics, Faisal. Nothing changed, but they wanted to give hope to people. Every but, you know, there's a pattern here. Every time the regime is pressured from one side, it pretends to make compromises and give something to the people. And this is why, you know, I maintain that without believable, credible pressure on the regime, nothing will ever change. They had credible pressure in 2005 after Hariri's assassination. There was, you know, a resolution from, you know, the, the Security Council when he had forced the extension of the then president, Emile Lahoud, and there was pressure uh, after his role in Iraq when Donald Rumsfeld uh, was calling, and, you know, many in the Bush administration were calling the regime a low-hanging fruit. So every time there was pressure, Bashar retracted. But when there's no credible pressure, you know, they do what they want. I mean, 2005 is a, a very interesting year. The, the Lebanese, perhaps with uh, with some reason, think of it as their version of the Arab Spring. And they say, you know, like so many things with the Lebanese, they do it first and they do it the best. But, the, <laughs> but the, it is an interesting time period because even though it's not hugely studied outside of the region, because that was probably the time period when Assad was under most pressure because of what was going on in Iraq next door. There was mm. certainly a feeling that the Americans would look at Iraq and say, well, why not? Why don't we just march on to Damascus? So there was a, a tendency to believe that something could change within the country. Yes, but they were always hanging, the Syrians, you know, the Syrian regime were always hanging on to the hope that things were going so terribly in Iraq that the Americans would not think of, you know, expanding this, you know, this, you know, this crazy... Uh... Well, they, they went out of their way to make sure. I mean, they weren't sitting on exactly. their hands hoping. Exactly. They, they were explicitly exactly. removing people from jail and sending them across the border. In busloads. And, and yeah. this is something most Syrians, you know, have seen with their own eyes. This was not really a big secret. But a lot of Lebanese uh, friends and, you know, people who watch Lebanon uh, professionally will remember that in the early, as soon as Bashar took power and even before his father's death, he was given the Lebanon file before Bashar Assad. It was Abdel Halim Khaddam, who was vice president at the time, who handled Lebanon. And say what you might about Abdel Halim Khaddam, he knew what he was doing. You know, he had been in, you know, in this position for, for decades. He knew how to deal with the different factions in Lebanon. He had excellent relations with uh, Hariri. And he had, so we call him the proconsul in Lebanon, who was Ghazi Kanan. You know, these names may not mean a lot to people outside the region, but, you know, every Lebanese and every Syrian will know who they are. When Bashar Assad started to take over power while his father was still alive in the last months, he removed Khaddam from the Lebanon file, took it over himself, and he removed Ghazi Kanan 
and place one of his own people and somebody who had absolutely no idea how to deal with them. So even with the Lebanon file, we saw a slow, you know, deterioration in, in relations. This is why things went finally completely south with Hariri, because Hariri is not somebody, Rafiq Hariri, the former prime and the late uh, prime minister of Lebanon, is not somebody who immediately wanted to cut relations with Syria. Not at all. Hariri was somebody who had no plans really at the beginning you know, of separating these two, uh, these two systems. Yeah, sort of but entities, was, was, yeah. Exactly, but was kind of cornered into that. And this is another one of Bashar's, Bashar Assad's misadventures in Lebanon, you know, miscalculations, because never did he imagine that when he forced unconstitutionally the renew, you know, the renewal for another three-year term of Emil Lahoud, just because he felt like it, by the way, but he wanted to force that on the Lebanese. He wanted to prove that he was the one who decided for the Lebanese and for the Syrians. He could have chosen any other candidate and they would have been just as loyal to him. This is when Hariri resigned. This is when the United Nations Security Council resolution, um, I, I, I forgot the number right now, but you know, as, you know, stating that all foreign forces must leave Lebanon. And by the time there was only Syria left because Israel has had withdrawn, you know, in precipitation in, in, in early 2000. So it was understood that this, this was against Syria. So just as things did not happen out of the blue in Syria, things also did not happen out of the blue in Lebanon. It took four or five years for us to get to this point of implosion. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I mean about 2005, because I think Lebanon was always seen as this kind of buffer for the uh, the, the Syrian empire. And so yeah. once you lose it, then you are in a much, uh, much reduced, much weaker position. And then, of course, now you have, you know, 100,000 American troops on your other border in yes. Iraq. Do you think about 2005 that there was any way the regime could have reformed its way out of the revolution that came later? Absolutely. They had so many different chances to turn the page, to say, you know what, we're done with that, been there, done that. Let's not, you know, meddle anymore in neighboring countries. Let's focus on what we have. But as I just mentioned, what they did was announce that they would have a social market economy. Until today, I defy economists and I defy Syrians who are very familiar with the Syrian economy and the Syrian regime to explain what that meant. The Syrian economy, for those who don't know it, is a, you know, a maze of, of instructions and legalities that nobody understands. So while things were opening up slowly, while Syrians were able finally to have small businesses without the interference and the permission of the intelligence service, I mean, you have to understand that for many years, Syrians couldn't even open a falafel stand without having the approval of the security. They had to go through through hoops to be able to have a small business. So in 2005, when Bashar Assad was, was ostracized by the world, by the United Nations, by, by everybody, you know, everybody was outraged by the assassination of Hariri. That yeah. would have been his chance to turn to, you know, domestically, to turn to the people and say, you know what? Let's focus on us. Let's focus on Syria. Let's do something. It may be in not so many words, but there was his chance to give. And he refused to do that. It was still always a question of the regime, of imposing, because 
this regime can only function on fear. Bashar tried to have the love and the admiration, but you know what? In the mid-2000s, this love and admiration and this whole, you know, vibe and the, 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 the hype about Bashar and his wife were beginning to slow down because people were beginning to really struggle in their daily life. There were hundreds of thousands, I mean, well over a million Iraqi refugees. And the Syrian regime is often praised for having accepted all these refugees. But, you know, let me clarify a little bit what that meant when Syria accepted uh, refugees. They got no help from the regime. What they were told, and that was indeed, you know, something good for the Iraqis, but they were told you, you have the right, like all Syrians, to free education and to free health care. What does that mean? That means that a Syrian school where we already had 30 to 40 students per class, and I'm being conservative here, suddenly had double the amount of students and nobody gave a damn. Everybody just let this thing happen, but Bashar could be the big savior and show that he was still the kingmaker in the region, but Syrians were getting frustrated. And let me tell you, there were a lot of incidents and there was at one point, unfortunately, a lot of bad blood between Iraqis and Syrians in various areas because such is human nature. Right. You well, I mean, this is... Others, but then, you know, at one point you have to think of your own, own family first. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, you know, I've talked about this in the past. I mean, the, the, the politics of life is the same everywhere, unfortunately. And even when you have two countries where there's a lot of good feeling, a lot of um, simpatico in terms of um, religion and in terms of culture between Syria and Iraq. And of course, you know, they were in the midst of an invasion. But ultimately, what people feel most is what is happening to their immediate family and their immediate surroundings. And when you have such a large number of people coming in, it does take you see that now, for example, with the Syrian relationship with the, with the Turkey. Um, do you think then, because we're talking about how 2005 could have been a turning point and then wasn't, and then obviously we're looking across at Iraq and the toppling of Saddam. There was never a plan to, to topple Hafez al-Assad in the way that there was with Saddam. There was never a plan to topple um, Bashar al-Assad. Do you think if there had been prior to 2011 that the Syrians in some way might have welcomed it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think Iraq was such a game changer, not only in, you know, in, in realpolitik, but in the perceptions of people and in the wishes of people. Nobody would wish on their country what happened in Iraq. That must be absolutely clear. That doesn't mean that anybody had any love for Saddam Hussein. On the contrary, I mean, Saddam Hussein's biggest enemy had always been the Syrian regime. I mean, I don't know if people know that, but Syrian passports, our Syrian passports, until the, you know, after the invasion had, you know, you know, traveled to all countries except Iraq. This was the only country we could not go to, obviously Israel, but, you know, nobody yeah. was, was thinking of that. So the relation between, you know, the Iraqi state and the Syrian state were terrible, but the Syrian people and any people who watched what happened in Iraq, nobody would wish that upon themselves. I think that by the time the invasion of Iraq happened, most Syrians, you know, would thought, you know, this is not what we want. Let's hold on to what we have. But if there were a little bit of pressure to you know, to push the regime to, you know, change things a little bit, to let us speak our minds, you know, to let us do a little bit more business, you know, we wouldn't mind. But this never happened. We've taken the story now 
sort of all the way from 2000 now to really the beginning of the, the revolution in 2011. Mm. And at this point, of course, now the whole of the Arab Spring is taking across the region. Um, Bashar says what he says to the, to the uh, Wall Street Journal that it can never happen. And then, of course, it happened. And you have this enormous explosion, which is still running through. Mm. I wonder, you, you believe that this was baked into the 2000s, that it was obvious that something was going to happen, even if it wasn't going to happen at that exact moment? I have no doubt. I have no doubt that an implosion was coming sooner or later. It might not have happened at the time it happened, had there not been the Arab Spring. Uh, the Arab Spring. Without a doubt, Syrians were inspired by the scenes they saw in Tunis, in Cairo, in Benghazi, in Tripoli. There's no doubt about that. Nobody can take that away from the different people in the region, you know, who who dared to 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 brave and and to defy the regimes. But again, none of these regimes, and I insist on this, none of these regimes was as violent, as ruthless, as barbaric as the Assad regime. And we already had the proof from Hama in 1982. We knew already this regime was capable, willing to, you know, happy to raise an entire city at the time, Hama. What we didn't know was that this would be allowed by the international community. So this was, I think, the sense of most Syrians. First of all, they felt, well, you know, if our brothers and sisters did it in other countries, how can we not do it? Especially when we recall how it started. And Pro-regime people will tell you this is propaganda, but I'm sorry, it's not. Children in Daraa started, you know, chanting and wrote graffiti on a wall outside their school. Jacques Doria, doctor, it's your turn, doctor, because this is how many people referred to Bashar Assad, doctor. And of course, they were arrested by uh, by the, the 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 governor of Daraa, who personally oversaw. Uh, the torture, I believe that their nails were ripped out. We we know the story for sure, which is why the elders of Dara came to the governor, begged him to release the children, and the governor told them, and this is an anecdote that most Syrians know, he told them, forget about these children, go make some more, and if you don't know how to, send us your wives, and we'll do it for you. So, if you know now that's an incredibly offensive yeah. thing to say Indeed. to i mean to anyone but Indeed. in a conservative syrian area it's an incredibly exactly. offensive thing to say exactly those who know the area and Derha is extremely conservative well you know obviously they went you know they, this is not something they could accept this is how the demonstrations began in Derha. So yes, there was the Arab Spring and yes, yes there was implosion coming but there is an incident that triggered all of this. So what did the security forces do? They started shooting into the demonstrations. A few people died, five, six, seven. I don't recall the exact number. So the next day, the Dara people brought, you know, these martyrs, as, as Syrians call them, and for burial. And during the funeral, you know, procession, more people were shot and so on and so forth. And it escalated. More Syrians started demonstrating. There was even something called... Bayan um, al-Halib, the statement of milk, or the milk statement rather, where well-known personalities, even actors and actresses said, please at least send milk to the children because by then, you know, a couple of weeks later, the, the regime had imposed its first siege 
of the Syrian revolution. And that was in Dara in April 2011. So things just escalated from there. But let us not forget that, yes, there was the Arab Spring. Yes, there was rising resentment and frustration in, in, a, in a vast segment of Syrian society. But there was also Dara and the children of Dara. Do you think early on in the uh, the uprising that there could have been an intervention that could have ended the regime and ended the uprising? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, I believe it. Where I, would, yeah, go on. No, sorry. I, I think that the, one of the things I remember is when, when the U.S. ambassador went to visit Homs, uh, when the demonstrations were happening, I believe that was in April or May, you know, forgive me if I get the date wrong, 2011. And a lot of Syrians at the time were not happy about that because what did this show? This showed that the U.S. was giving lip service to the revolution saying, you know, we want to protect you. But that was immediately interpreted by the regime and its supporters as, you know, uh, meddling by the U.S. and as proving that the West was trying to remove the regime. I believe that before the regime had reached the point of using the army, it started with the tanks, it started with, with artillery shelling. It took a while for the helicopters to go up into the sky and then for the MiGs and let alone, you know, the Russians to come in in 2015. There were hundreds of opportunities to give, you know, Bashar Assad an ultimatum to, you know, to make credible threats. There was another it's huge... It's a credible threat, Reem. I mean, Barack Obama said this. He said the problem with making a threat is that if the person doesn't do it, and he was talking explicitly about Bashar al-Assad, you yes. then have to go in and get them. Yes. And, then... and do you believe that, a, that an intervention, I mean, let's say by the United States or by some coalition, could have actually done that and it wouldn't have ended up in the way that Iraq ended up? I don't believe in 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 the intervention as uh, you know boots on the ground. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring that to the fact that before we reach that stage, there could have been some very serious pressure. But we don't believe that this pressure was applied in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we were, I mean, Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the beginning of the revolution, spoke of Bashar Assad as a reformer. So if we want to look back on all the statements that were made, they were very lukewarm. History has shown that every time the regime felt threatened or felt some serious consequences were about to happen, it retreated. It retreated from Lebanon based on those threats. It would have thought twice about carpet bombing the country had it known that there was only so much that the international community would accept. And when the regime tested the international community, and specifically the United States, in August 2013 with the chemical massacre in Douma, well, that was the end of the story for all Syrians. And we saw, you know, the, the incredible uh, massacres, you know, the, the, the ferocity of the bombings, then, you know, the entry of Russia into the game. And these are the only people who have air power. So, Faisal, I do insist on the, on, on the fact that at the beginning, Syrians did not want intervention. What they began asking for after asking for pressure was a no-fly zone. Because either give us, you know, impose a no-fly zone so that you remove the, the, the biggest weapon of mass destruction from the regime, which is, you know, the skies, or at one point, they start saying, okay, fine, we understand your considerations. Give us some manpads. Let us shoot down 
that's what you know the armed rebels were saying and even the yeah. opposition give us a few man pads let us shoot down a couple of helicopters and Bashar Assad will not bomb us again none of that happens none of these um options were ideal but I don't think there was a single Syrian, or I'm exaggerating maybe, but yeah, you know, yeah, sure. very few Syrians at the beginning would have wanted an armed intervention and you know boots on the ground again because of Iraq. Because Do you of think, Iraq. Yeah. yeah, because of Iraq, and, and you can draw, um, I mean, a link between the ending of the Saddam regime and the way that it was, that it ended, and yeah. the sort of reluctance to take any concrete steps against the Assad regime. I mean, this, this idea that there was a, a fear that there would be the law of unintended consequences. That's why they didn't want to give manpads because they thought they might be end up being you know, shooting down civilian aircraft. But yeah. I wonder about the about how it could have ended, because okay, if you say on the one end there's this sort of uh, intervention that could have happened that was would probably have ended almost exactly as Iraq. But then there were other things all the way along that could have been done, the no-fly zone and so on. Do you think then that the the failure of the outside world to do anything was ultimately uh, what what I mean caused it to spiral out of control? Absolutely, because the Turks are now in, uh, the Russians have bases everywhere, they are in control. The uh, Iran, Iran-backed militias are are rummage, you know, are running wild and free not just in Syria, but in Iraq and in Yemen and in Lebanon, all of this could have been avoided. Bashar Assad could have been taken out, or at least his air force, at least, you know, the facilities producing the weapons of mass destruction and the chemical and possibly biological weapons, you know, as far as we know, what we hear. None of this was done. What Barack Obama did was happily give, you know, push the responsibility over to OPCW and make a very quick, you know, kind of deal with Putin. This is not a problem that Obama wanted because Obama wanted a different legacy to be, you know, to to live beyond his two terms. And that was the Iran nuclear deal. And I think a lot of people who have watched the U.S. and the region over the years would agree with me. Nothing was supposed to stand in the way of achieving that deal. And Syria was one of the pawns that were sacrificed for this, and the Syrian people in particular. It's part of sort of what we've been talking about, I think, is really how you might remove these these leaders, whether through the, the death of Hafez or um, through toppling of Saddam. But do you think there was a way that the revolution could have been ended, but that Assad would have remained in power in some way? Absolutely not. If we remember that the revolution began with chance for dignity. Syrians call it, uh, you know, karama. You know, this is a revolution for dignity. In the end, this is what unites us all, Faisal, all around the world. People want to live in dignity, in, in equality, in social justice and everything. And I think that the Syrian revolution in its essence, and it's a revolution in all senses of the term, is not different from all the movements that we follow with pride and with love and with affection and you know with, with sympathy all around the world. This is what the Syrians wanted. They didn't want a war. They did not want uh, intervention. They wanted to be able to live in dignity. Today, 
after having, you know, lost half of its population, you know, as they're either refugees, we have over 6 million Syrians outside the country, and over 7 million Syrians who are internally displaced. And these are conservative figures, because we don't know, after over half a million people killed, the, the country is destroyed, they've got nowhere to come back to. Is it really possible today, after everything they've lost, to tell Syrians, well, you know, too bad, let's, you know, let's try to, to, to find a way to turn the page without accountability, without justice? First of all, what message does this send to the regime and to Syrians, but also what message does it send to other populist authoritarian leaders around the world? Somebody has to pay. You commit a crime, you are held accountable. And the only person today who can be pressured to reach, you know, to achieve this closure is Vladimir Putin. And I don't believe in, you know, honest negotiations have begun with him. We've uh, brought us right up to date, actually, to what we are currently living through now in 2021 with Syria. Um, but I sort of want to, and we're coming now to the end of the podcast, but I wanted to take you back to the topic that we were really starting to talk about, which is the death of Hafez al-Assad in 2000. And I wondered if we go all the way back now, all the way through the, the, the years to that moment, what did it feel like when this figure that was sort of staring down at you from billboards, what was it like to know that that figure was no more? For a lot of Syrians, it was a shock because that's all they had ever known. You know, younger Syrians, the younger generation, there were children who, since the day they were born, the president was Hafez Assad. Mm. You know, it was crazy to imagine that the pillars of the Syrian state could be, you know, shaken a little bit. And I wrote, uh, you know, a lot about this period. And I remember thinking, this is a very strange kind of Stockholm syndrome. But I analyzed it a little bit differently. I felt at the time that finally, again, I will bring you the comparison with Jordan and with Morocco. When the Jordanian king had died, um, King Hussein had died, there was, you know, world, you know, the world paid its respects and, you know, all the media descended on Amman and everybody was talking about it. Same thing with King Hassan. When Hafez Assad died, I feel that the Syrian people uh, wanted the world to look at them and to give them the same respect that they had given the Jordanian people and the Moroccan people because they felt, you know what? We are important, come and look at us. We are also hurt, we are also mourning. And I witnessed the craziest, the craziest, you know, demonstrations. And there were young people and old people. And of course, a lot of these demonstrations were forced because that's the way the bath works. And we would need another hour to describe indoctrin indoctrination and to describe how state employees have no choice but to show up. But a part of me believes, Faisal, that there really was this need by Syrian people everywhere, no matter what their background, no matter what their social class, to say, you know what, we are important. Yes, you CNN and you BBC and you know everybody, yes, you should come and pay your respects. And that's why most Syrians, despite, you know, regardless everything we felt about Hafez Assad, felt a little bit of pride when Jacques Chirac, the pre president of France, came to the funeral. And I know that they were hoping for, you know, a higher attendance, but, you know, Hafez Assad being Hafez Assad, you know, we were not going to get the same turnout as King Hussein. But I think it's important to, to recognize that Syrians 
having been isolated for so long at one point in time felt our time has come for people to to recognize us as a people and to give us their respects and this is the only game we have in town so we'll accept your condolences even for Hafiz Assad. Mm. I wonder if we can end on a personal note because you spent some time living under um, an authoritarian regime. I wonder what you think is the biggest thing you learned from living under this regime. Wow, this is a, such a huge question. I think that what what I take back from those years, you know, coming and going to Damascus is that we have lost trust. Syrians do not trust one another. And when the revolution exploded, they were all of a sudden put together. And what we saw in the local coordination councils, in uh, committees, and in the in the various local councils, and you know, in the work that civil society all of a sudden organized, they were the ones who fed the neighbors and you know the doctors who gave everything they had to help their others. This is something that gave us trust in one another again. I'm not saying it's still at that same level, but what living under regimes such as these is that it turns you against your neighbor, it turns you against your family because your only, your only priority is making sure that you and your family are safe. And then, you know, you try to trust, you know, a slightly wider circle, you know, your cousins, your extended family, but overall, it is the trust between different segments of society that these regimes break, and they break it purposely. They break it intending to make people rely only on the regime. The revolution has shown that when they have no other choice, Syrians and other people in the region and in the world know that they can depend on one another when they share the same values. That is the wish to live, you know, a dignified life and a free life. And I think in this, Syrians are the same as everybody else in the world. Reem Alap, thank you very much. Thank you, Faisal. You can find Reem on Twitter at RAlaf. And of course, you can follow all our VSA's podcasts and our newsletter at newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>